This last four weeks have been a four-week series that I do now and then, a kind of a series with a related theme of classes. And as I say each week, you don't have had to have been to them, but it, it does make a package. So if you haven't and you want to get them off the web, you can. And this four weeks has been on what are called the divine abodes, or the Brahma Viharas. And what that means are these are the qualities of the awakened heart. What are they? How do we cultivate them? And we're on week four, so if you haven't been at all, it's okay, as I said. But the first week was on loving-kindness, the second week on compassion, last week on joy, and this week is on equanimity. It's called upeka, that's the Pali word. And equanimity is essential for the first three. All the qualities of heart, for them to be in full radiance, depend on this quality of mind that we call equanimity, which is a balance that occurs when we're in full presence, where there's not any grasping after anything, not any resisting, when in a very profound way there's no effort to make the moment different. There's just open presence. And in that open presence, in that space, that's where love and joy and compassion can shine through. It arises, this space of equanimity, and it's a balance. And we all have moments of it. We just pass right through them and don't know it. But we have those moments where we're not trying to make things different. There's just a kind of a resting in how things are. But the sustained kind of experience of equanimity comes from a kind of wisdom And it's a wisdom that who we are and what we are is not limited to a self that has to constantly try to defend itself and protect itself and promote itself. That rather our deepest identity is really with the awareness and love that's, that's infinite, vast, and shared. And that in those moments, and we glimmer them, that what we are is really a mystery. We glimmer it that we're more than this kind of pattern of thoughts or emotions. And when we begin to rest in that larger sense of being, there's no need to grasp or to resist. There's a natural quality of openness and presence that arises sometimes described as egolessness. And it doesn't mean there's not emotions that come through and thoughts and there's not still an intention to to make things work out for this particular body-mind, but in the most essential way, as I've sometimes described it, we're remembering the ocean. So the set of waves can come and go, but there's some remembrance of the vastness and mystery of what we are. So there's an essential egolessness. We're not centered around a sense of self. Pema Chodron describes it this way. She says, egolessness has been compared to the rays of the sun. With no solid sun, in other words, no solid selfness in here, the rays just radiate outward. In the same way, wakefulness naturally radiates out when we're not so concerned with ourselves. Egolessness is the same thing as really realizing our basic goodness, 
our Buddha nature, our beingness. So in the moments that we realize and rest in that vaster beingness, the self-centeredness dissolves and the radiance of love and wisdom can shine forth. Now the given for most of us is that we wouldn't be here if we didn't have some intuition of that mystery, of that vastness, of that awareness, that that's what we are. There has to be some intuition of that. And yet, for most of us, there's a kind of daily trance that we get caught in and we live in that's very, very preoccupied with this self. And most of us go into it for good swaths of time. I was just sent this today. My mom sent it to me. It was in the New Yorker. I really like it. This guy's at a bar and he's confessing to the uh, bartender. He goes, I'm nothing. And yet I'm all I can think about. (laughs) I think that's great. (laughs) So we get it. There's no self here and yet we're completely caught up in this self, you know. So at the times that we're very occupied with self, love can still be there, but it's very conditional. It's only if things meet our criteria in a certain way. It's very conditional. And we're not really free to love in a, in a very open-hearted way. We hold back, there's a lot of controlling. There's a real tendency to control the people around us because when we're self-oriented, others become either something we want something from them or they're in our way. I like the, this from Carol Leifer. She says, whenever I travel, I like to keep the seat next to me empty. I found a great way to do it. When someone walks down the aisle and says to you, is someone sitting there? Just say, no one except the Lord. (laughs) Talking about control trips, you know. (laughs) We get very strategic here. (laughs) So as we know, the deeper we're in that trance of me and victimized me and offended me and insulted me and so on, the more we're in a kind of reactive mode and the more armored our heart. It just goes hand in hand. So tonight what I'd like to do is explore how we move from that very human reactivity that every one of us, every one of us goes into, how we move from that to the kind of presence I was describing, that that space of equanimity where we're not grasping and pushing away and we're, we're in that kind of openness that really lets us spontaneously be in love with our world. How do we make that movement? And um, in a way that's, we'll be deepening that exploration on the day long on the 14th which is really how to free ourselves from reactivity. In uh, the Buddhist teachings, and this is true for Western psychology too, every moment is understood as either having a quality of pleasantness unpleasantness or neutrality, that that's in every moment, and that these nervous systems are designed to respond every moment when it's pleasant to having a wanting that can turn into a grasping, when it's unpleasant to have a resisting that can turn to aversion. When it's neutral, we get inattentive because it doesn't matter to us. So we can see in our day, because we're always encountering a steady stream of experiences and always in reactivity and sometimes it's very low-key reactivity where we're just 
obsessing and this idea of getting through the day and slightly annoyed by this or slightly relieved about that. And But we're on our way somewhere. And it may be that you can sense the inner kind of agitation or restlessness or trying to navigate or manage in the way we eat or in the way we're a little brisk in a conversation or kind of caught up in our email or whatever it is. But that there's this kind of low-key level of we're just in constant reaction to something. And then we know when it proliferates and when we're in the full-blown addiction to our anger or our rightness or our depression where we're in full-blown withdrawal or behaviorally when we're really acting out. There's a classic teaching story that I've always liked. It, It goes like this. A big tough samurai once went to see a little monk. Monk, he said in a voice accustomed to instant obedience, teach me about heaven and hell. The little monk looked up at this mighty warrior and replied with utter disdain, teach you about heaven and hell? I couldn't teach you about anything. You're dirty, you smell, your blade is rusty. (laughs) You're a disgrace, an embarrassment to the samurai class. Get out of my sight, I can't stand you. The samurai was furious, he shook got all red in the face, was speechless with rage. He pulled out his sword and raised it above him, preparing to slay the monk. That's hell, said the monk softly. The samurai was overwhelmed. The compassion and surrender of this little man who had offered his very life to give this teaching to show him hell. He slowly put down his sword, filled with gratitude and suddenly peaceful. And that's heaven, said the monk softly. So our suffering is to different degrees, but when we're at war with how it is, at war with how it is from what we perceive in another person or what we don't like in ourselves, that's hell. And when in some way we can put down the sword, and the sword sometimes, as as I mentioned, is in the form of, of judging and blaming and attacking, and sometimes the sword's more of a kind of grasping weapon, but when we can put it down, there is a profound peace, a profound peace. So the Buddha taught that it is absolutely natural to go into this reactive trance that we go into. And if you want to lock yourself in trance, start judging your trance. I mean, that is it. You want to put yourself into jail. Just just notice how you go into reaction and make yourself bad for it. Guaranteed recipe for like condemned suffering forever and ever, amen, you know. So the first step, really, of freedom is to notice the reactivity and absolutely go, okay, this is just the human condition. But the Buddha said, so it's natural to go into this trance, but it's also our capacity, it's our absolute given nature to be able to become conscious of it. And in the moments that we become conscious of the reactivity then the gate opens, then there's some freedom possible. It's all about becoming conscious of it. So, in a way, the teaching tonight is how to bring equanimity to when we've lost equanimity. Okay? Does that make sense? And and the good news is, it doesn't matter how far gone you are, there's never a time that you can't begin to say, oh, what's happening? And in some way begin to witness and in the moments of witnessing, start to loosen that solidified sense of a victimized self, oppressed self. 
because the antidote to the selfing, the suffering, is noticing it. As soon as we notice we're not so inside it, our identity starts dissolving. So the, the basic reactive pattern we have is that things should be different. And that's what's underneath. In any moment that we're reacting, if we really investigate, it's things should be different. And um, <clears throat> share with you a story <clears throat> where I think a woman really found her way wonderfully. This was, a, she, this was a woman who has difficulty with walking meditation. We teach her retreats, this kind of fair, sometimes slow walking to get very, very present in motion. And... Um, she wanted to do less of the walking practice and more of the sitting practice and the teacher she was working with said well how about stopping sitting and just doing a whole day of just walking because you know he noticed that she was at war with how it was and he thought well why don't you just surrender into it anyway so she wrote a note she did it she she negotiated she said how about half and he said okay and she, so here's her note she wrote to him well long walking meditation all morning assignment completed thank you Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I had been so resistant to it, but no, circumstances taught me something else instead. I chose to walk in the annex walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking as a little engine that could, wearing noisy little boots. (laughs) Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half, except when he paused to drink or remove a a noisy layer of clothing. I tried metta, that's the loving-kindness practice. Surely he would have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. (laughs) I stood there noting with presence, hate, hate. (laughs) Later, I stood in the middle of the room and wept, tears, tears. Then I got to the point that I realized that whatever problem he had was his, not mine. And after that, I got quiet, and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed, and he paced and pounded, and pretty sure it was all the same to me, his noise, my breath, the movement of my body. After an hour and a half, he left, and it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I had expected, mostly just different. Thank you. Do you understand that the freedom doesn't come from getting it our way? The freedom is a shift in how we are relating. And it's true for the little things and it's true for the big things. Whatever it is, we think, if only this was different, then I'd be okay. In the most profound way, the okayness doesn't come from any change in circumstances in our life. In fact, the exact circumstances in our lives are perfectly designed to liberate us should we be willing, as this woman was, just to stay and start noticing instead of trying to change it. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try to change things. It's absolutely intelligent and compassionate. If you get a migraine, you take your aspirin, whatever it is. So we're not talking about some rigid ideological thing. What we're talking about is that in this life there are things we can't change, really. You know, the aging and sickness and the loss of other beings and the way other people behave. But where there is the capacity for freedom are in the moments that we pause 
and notice our attitude, which is usually this shouldn't be happening and I have to make it different to be okay, and instead come into taking refuge in presence. Then there's a shift in the sense of who we are, which is the only place there's real freedom. I find this path of equanimity described beautifully in a description called Krencia, it's a place in the bull ring where bull feels absolutely safe. And I've shared this here before and I want to kind of bring it in again because I think it describes it in a terrific way. So this Krencia is this place in the bull ring, the bull feels safe, if he can reach this place he stops running and can gather his strength and get renewed and he's no longer afraid. And then from the perspective of the opponent, he becomes dangerous. He's not in reactivity, he's kind of centered. So the job of the matador is to be sure the bull does not have time to occupy this place of wholeness, to keep him off balance. Now, as human beings, Karencia is within us. Every one of us has that space within us. It's, it's that kind of refuge within us of pure presence kind of that still, inner, awake, alert place. We have it within us. And when a person finds that in the full view of Mara, in other words, the circumstances are still there. Mara is the god of greed, hatred, delusion. So stuff is still happening. And in the face of Mara, when we can find Karencia, in other words, just come into that stillness where we can bear witness to what's happening, let our hearts open to what's happening, be there without pushing away or controlling anything, that's when we discover our freedom. So the inquiry is how do we train in a sense so that when we typically would go into reaction, we can pause and find our, our space right here, that presence right here. How do we do that? And the first step is to start getting to know the flags of when we're really lost. Usually the flags that we're in trance are anger, judgment, fear. And usually when those emotions come up in us, we immediately try to do something to soothe them. If it's fear, we immediately try to do whatever we can to be less afraid. If it's anger, we just keep on going with the thoughts of who's wrong and he did and he said and I couldn't and she didn't and you know we just we're just off and running judgments so the first step is having a kind of inner commitment because something in us really wants to wake up more than we want to stay in our pattern to pause and go okay this is Mara you know and we're in the bull ring and this is Mara and this is the reaction, and always those emotional states are kind of an entrance for us into Krencia. So I find that the biggest uh, training ground for most of us is with the people either that are closest or that most matter to us. Because that's where some of the deepest wanting and fearing and disappointment and betrayal, all that stuff gets stirred up in those relationships. And where it comes from is that, as with all organisms, we mistakenly perceive and identify as a separate entity. I mean, that's our conditioning. And so that we, and that gives rise to these universal needs to feel safe, to feel nourished, 
emotionally, physically. So we get attached to the sources of safety and nourishment and we get aversive when it's deprived, when there's deprivation. So what that means is that for most of us, in most of our relationships, they're marbled with attachment and aversion. It's like there's love. But if we're in this human body and we still believe we're a separate self, there's going to be attachment and aversion. And that's the training ground. It's not to say it shouldn't be there. It's not to try to get rid of it. It's to begin to train in those places where that's what's coming up. I more and more am finding just that phrase, it's not in the way, it's the way. So that when something comes up with somebody and it's that pattern again that we really don't like, if there's something in us that can shift our attitude from oh, here I am stuck in the same pattern as when, since I've been a teenager or I'm always pushing away people when I ask, you know. We go, oh, okay, this is it. This is the place that's exactly right for this body-mind to discover a more profound freedom. This is it. So what we'll find if we're wanting to train in equanimity in our relationships is that the main pattern with others is that we're trying to have the other be different. We want something more from them. There's some demand, some requirement that they change. So for those of us that want to find equanimity, we're going to see that there. Barbara Streisand said it well. She says, why does a woman work for ten years to change the man's habit and then complain that he's not the man she married? (laughs) So the suffering is that it doesn't matter if we're right. It just doesn't matter if we're right and that person's being outrageous. The point is that we have no freedom if we insist on them being different. Part of the suffering is that when we have any agenda on how someone else should be or how they should change, we can't really see them. And in some way, our way of being with them, because they become an object, isn't a free flow of love. It's contorted, it's twisted a little. I love the story of this woman who's a physician. She's uh, descri- driving her daughter to kindergarten and the little girl picks up her stethoscope and she's handling it with, with care, with great curiosity. And so the woman's saying to herself, be still, my heart, because she has a secret wish that her daughter might be drawn to medicine. And then the little girl brings a stethoscope to her mouth and says cheerfully, welcome to McDonald's, may I take your order? <laughs> So, you know, it can be light, our attachments to our kids and how they, it can be light, but often, I can speak for myself, it's like we want them to be happy and we have an idea of how they should be to be happy and it's very scary and disturbing when they aren't the way we think they should be. So that blocks up some of the flow of loving and of of freedom. And then, of course, the other pattern and other suffering is that when we are invested in thing, someone being different or in ourselves being different, in other words, when we're in a reactivity with another person, we can't see who we are. So not only are they an object to try to satisfy us or that aren't cooperating with us, we don't really like ourselves because we get small. We become the needy self or the victimized self or the oppressed self. 
so the whole, this whole path towards equanimity is a pathway to coming into the kind of presence that allows us to really be at home with the truth of what we are, not in a reactivity that keeps us identified as a smaller self. I think probably for most of us the biggest um, signal that can catch our attention is blame. And I've used that now for the last couple of years as knowing really, really deep down that any time I start telling myself stories of me being wrong or somebody else being wrong, that I am locking into a smaller identification and disconnecting from my heart. But just to say, we don't always blame ourselves or others. This is uh, Yogi Berra. He says, I never blame myself when I'm not hitting. I just blame the bat. And if it keeps up, I change bats. After all, if I know it's not my fault that I'm not hitting, how can I get mad at myself? <laughs> Typical Yogi Berra here. So the strategy, if there's such a thing, towards equanimity is a willingness to pause in the midst. As soon as we catch the flag that we're off, where there's an attitude of you should be different, I should be different, life should be different, as soon as there's any attitude like that, and attitude's really important to track, then there's a pausing. And the pausing is really the only way we can re-find that presence that can free us. And I'll give you an example for myself. I've shared a number of stories here in terms of raising my son because, as I mentioned, it's usually those very close to us that that um, stir up stuff. And um, one, one of the learning experiences for me that was most profound in terms of equanimity happened about two or three years ago, and it was at a phase where my, my son was completely um, carried away by his social life, and I was getting fewer and fewer phone calls. And um, I would call and, and either not get to him or he wouldn't call me back or he'd pick up the phone and say, can't talk now, click. And so it, this was building up in me and um, we hadn't talked for quite a few weeks and I called him on New Year's Eve, early in the evening before things started. I should have known better. Pre-party time is just not the time. But anyway, I called him and it was one of those very dismissive, you know, he picked up and I could see he almost wished he hadn't picked up on me and, and, hung, and hung up. And um, I went into like a really, really tight reactive place that, that was very familiar of being very angry at him and having this whole um, dialogue go on in my mind and how on earth did he become so narcissistic and insensitive and oblivious to others and, you know, on and on. And so that's when something in me said, okay, pause. Now, pausing when you're angry is really, really hard. I mean, it's really hard because the very message of anger is do something and get rid of it. You know, get rid of that person through your blame. So to stop the blaming thoughts and just pause and be with what's here is like signing up for really unpleasant experience. You know, do you know what I mean? It's like really hard. Okay. So this was, you know, I'm not bragging, but this was like I was really making an effort here. And one of the um, metaphors I think is real useful is that in, in the art of the East, at the entrances to 
temples and also in the mandalas as you go towards the center there's often a ring of wrathful deities and they're they're enraged or they're angry they're they're jealous they're fearsome fearful and the message is to get to sacred space you have to be willing to go through and feel and be with and befriend the wrathful deities the animal-headed goddesses and gods so there I was and this wrathful deity of, of anger was there and then being with it is really a process we've talked here I've described it as rain recognizing and allowing and investigating and getting intimate with it's a, it's a, it's a process of presence with it so for me um, I sensed that, that anger as a demon and um, sensed the feeling of the anger and then underneath that a feeling of hurt which as many of you know underneath the angers can be hurt or fear and I've gotten into this practice that I'll also ask well, okay so what's the feeling and what's the need here what's the unmet need because always when we're in a reactivity there's an unmet need and for me the unmet need was to feel connected and feel loved and, and I had a belief that he doesn't really love me I mean, some wiser part of me would say, of course he loves me, he's my son. But that was the young, gripped place. You know, he doesn't love me, I'm not feeling connected. When I could be fully present with that sense of this unmet need to feel loved, to feel connected, feeling the pain of, oh, I don't feel loved, that's when I could do this. And you know, those of you that have been here a lot, that's where there was a shift from the angry or hurt person to that space of compassion and presence that's just bearing witness and tenderly holding what's here in the movement from reactivity to equanimity there's a shift in identity we go from being in that chain reaction of hurting and acting out with our thoughts and our actions to a kind of presence that reconnects us with space with compassion and with a certain wisdom that that's not who we are we realize, oh, I'm bigger than that any moment that I would, over this time period have regressed into he owes me an apology he shouldn't be like that, he should be different I was back in the old identity does this make sense? So this is just an example of the shift and and as an update for you because I feel like I've told so many stories of the challenge um, he's become very um, sensitive, considerate calls me a lot, you know Um, and I think part of what really helped was that I didn't believe you're wrong and you owe me and I didn't believe in that too much we lock in the patterns it's, there's no way a person can come towards us if we're blaming them so, but it took me going inside to really be with what was so painful to then have that quality of tenderness and space open up and that's what happens when we're present the tenderness and space opens up now I want to make a note here that in this process of moving towards equanimity it's not like a detachment or a dissociation it's not like saying, oh, this disappointment or hurt or fear or anger shouldn't be here it's not like saying, 
oh, I'm bigger than this, I'm not going to get into this. It's like we're actually getting into the feeling of it. You can't get to equanimity by being, you know, by too prematurely transcending, okay? And I've seen that on a lot of spiritual protocols and paths, this kind of assuming, well, I'm bigger than this, therefore I'm not going to have to, I'm not going to get into the messiness. We have to feel it. So equanimity ends up being the freedom when we're really not moving away from what's here, when we've agreed to just stay. I think the language of this too is very helpful. When something in us goes, okay, this too, okay, I'll make room for this too, and this too, and this too. So there's this, this willingness to keep on including. And underneath that, what we start to discover is that what we're including is just our humanness. It's not so personal. The reason we reject what's here is we take it so personally. We think, oh, this is about me and it shouldn't be here and it's wrong. So when we start saying this too, we start realizing these are just human energies, or even more than human energies, just energies. This is Carl Sandburg's poem, Wilderness. It's one of my favorites. There is a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat. I keep this wolf because the wilderness gave it to me and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fox in me, a silver gray fox. I sniff and guess. I pick things out of the wind and air. I nose in the dark night and take sleepers and eat them and hide the feathers. There's a hog in me, a snout and a belly, a machinery for eating and grunting a machinery for sleeping, satisfied in the sun. And I got this too from the wilderness, and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fish in me. I know I came from salt blue water gates. I scurried with shawls of herring. I blew water spouts with porpoises before land was, before Noah. There's a baboon in me, clamoring, clawed, dog-faced, yawping a galoot's hunger, hairy under the armpits. There are hawk-eyed, hankering men. There are blonde and blue-eyed women. Here and they lie curled asleep waiting, ready to snarl and kill, ready to sing and give milk. I keep the baboon because the wilderness says so. There's an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and flights among the Sierra crags. Oh, I got a zoo, I got a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart, and I got something else. It is a man-child heart, a woman-child heart. It is a father and mother and lover. It came from God knows where. It is going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo. I say yes and no. I sing and kill and work. I am a pal of the world. I came from the wilderness." So I share this because we get into trouble when we take personally the cravings and the passions and the doubts and the shames. It's just the energy of this life living through these bodies. And in the moments when, rather than rejecting or acting out, we can pause, we begin to touch a very precious kind of freedom. So as we do here so often, I'd like to do a little guided meditation so you can have a chance to just choose something you'd like to find some more equanimity around.
And in, in keeping a little with the themes I've been bringing up, if you'd like to let come to mind a person that you care about and yet have some sort of an aversive reactivity going on with, um, that might be helpful. So this could be any sort of conflict that comes up. Anywhere where your attitude on some level is that you're wanting them to be different, you want things to be different. So you might think of a situation that's typical, that brings up some reaction of anger or hurt or fear or judgment. And come close enough to the situation so you can kind of get in touch with what comes up. That you can really sense, so what, what is the feeling here? And if you're, if you're sensing fear or anger or hurt, you might just ask the feeling, you know, what its view is right now of the world, what things are like for it, what it's believing. It might be that it's believing that you're not being respected or loved or understood, you're not safe. So you start sensing the need that's not being met. And if it's helpful for you as you start sensing this and bringing presence to what's here, because you're really, whether we call it a demon or a part of us, we're bringing presence to this place in us. You might put your hand on your heart and just offer a kind and witnessing presence to the fear or the hurt or the anger, to the part of you that needs to feel understood and doesn't feel it, or needs to feel respected or safe. Pathway to Karencia, to this equanimity, is to just be honestly present with what's here inside you. To sense a care towards the place in you that in some way has an unmet need. And to notice that even a little bit of a gesture of being present with creates an openness, less identification with the injured person, ourself. It gives you a vaster place to rest. You start coming home to something more true and more whole. Just a simple message to your own heart, I care about this suffering, or this too, or it's okay. 
Now continuing to, to be here and in your mind's eye imagine this whole room of people that each of us in some way is reflecting on a difficult experience on fear or hurt or anger so that each of us is encountering some of the energies of the wilderness this man-woman body that's here that just feels hurt or anger or fear so you can begin to sense it's not so personal that we are the space of heart and awareness that it's happening in this shared space begin to sense what happens when you recognize who you are in the moments when there's not a reacting but simply a presence So like any of these practices, this is a life practice to just begin to pause and be willing to very courageously face and investigate what's here so that in that presence we're no longer caught and identified so much. One of the real gifts of, of this practice is that the more it becomes our, our way to pause and reconnect with that kind of larger space, the more naturally we're able to respond to others with a sense of care, with compassion or love versus reacting to them. Because we've made friends with the different kinds of conditions and moods within us. And this is the real source for unconditional love. That as we befriend these emotions, in that openness, our, actually our emotional body becomes very sensitive and responsive in a way that we come, become lovers of the world. We love life because there's not this yes, I'll take this and no, I don't want that. And it's that open-handedness that actually frees us. A story that um, I love, and I've share, shared here a few years ago, so if some of you might remember, really gives, a, kind of illustrates that inner freedom. And this is written by a surgeon. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscle of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon, me, had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. The young husband, her young husband, is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it well. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. 
He bends to kiss her crooked mouth, an eye so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. Really, the freedom of a heart that's not having to have things a certain way. This is the heart that's as wide as the world, that really holds the world in all its different expressions and can respond from that presence. This is the egolessness that Pema Chodron was talking about, where rather than the centering around a self that has to have this but doesn't want that, there's really resting in a presence that can respond to whatever arises. Pema Chodron writes a little more. She says, when you begin to touch your heart or let your heart be touched in this way, you begin to discover that it's bottomless, that it doesn't have any resolution, that this heart is huge, vast, and limitless. You begin to discover how much warmth and gentleness there is as well as how much space. So I want to close by saying that we don't find equanimity by arranging our life just so, so that we don't run into difficult circumstances or we sidestep them. It feels to me that there's a kind of a courage in the training where we recognize that it's truly in the face of Mara that we start to find out who we are. And if we make it wrong that Mara has appeared, in other words, if we make it wrong that we're feeling jealous or that we're feeling scared, or that we're feeling addictive, or whatever it is, then we lose our opportunity to wake up. If instead we can go, oh, okay, this is the path. These very emotions are the path. This is the gateway. Then we have the opportunity, and it's hard and it's scary, but it's liberating to pause and to begin to notice what's here and befriend it in a way that reconnects us with space and freedom. So we'll just take a few moments to, to again close with a, a meditation and just to notice that the meditation practice we do here on Wednesday and that we can practice on our own is actually the most moment-to-moment training in equanimity. So we'll just close with a bit of that practice. The invitation in this pause is to open to the wilderness within, whatever the wilderness has given you in this moment. Whatever heat, whatever pressure, whatever your heart is experiencing, whatever you're hearing, And see if you can just relax with your experience, whatever it is right now. And sense what happens if, rather than making anything wrong, there's a profound quality of saying yes. Exactly how life is right now. Yes to this.
It's through this space of presence that the radiance of love, the radiance of compassion and joy can shine through. May all beings everywhere realize this natural presence as their very essence. May all beings everywhere live from presence, love from presence. May all beings everywhere touch a natural and great peace. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org.